All right, well, I will get us started here with a lead in and just say that my name's Michelle Marino and this is Ben Bauman. And today's date is Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. And we are interviewing Patricia Miller. We are at her office in Indianapolis, Indiana. So to begin, we wanted to discuss your childhood a bit. Okay. Uh, for the record, could you tell us when and where you were born? Mm -hmm. I was born in Bell Fountain, Ohio, 1936. When I was about three years old, my parents moved to Indianapolis. So I've been here ever since. And what were your parents' names? My father was Richard and my mother was Rachel. Okay. Miller. Yeah. <laughs> and could you... Oh, the, yeah. which by the way, my maiden name was Miller. I married a Miller. So it is Miller Miller. So, yeah. okay. That's funny. <laughs> could you tell us about your childhood a bit? I grew up in a small community, Cumberland, which is southeast of here. There were a lot of us kids around. We walked to elementary school, which was about two blocks away, regardless of weather. When we weren't in school, we were out on our bicycles a lot, and it was an interesting community. It was primarily an old German community, but some of the more elderly people would be out on their porches. So we were well cared for, whether our parents knew where we were or not. And if we did anything we shouldn't have done, my parents knew by the time we got home because someone would have called them. But we had essentially a community um, supervision. There was a, a creek not too far from us, Buck Creek. We'd go down there and fish, which is no longer has fish and so on, but grew up in a stable home. My mother was one of eight children, and so we had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. But anyway, my childhood was essentially always in the same community. I went to Cumberland Grade School, which is no more, a Warren Central High School, and then Methodist Hospital School of Nursing and Indiana University. So wow. that kind of brings me to where we are, I guess. <laughs> That's great. And you said, you, did you have lots of siblings? Oh, no, I had one brother. One brother, okay. Mm -hmm. What understanding, if any, did you have about your family's politics or political beliefs as a child? Okay, I guess the first thing I remember, my parents owned a restaurant. Uh, it was closed during the war, but in the Dewey Truman race, my parents' restaurant was opened up as a voting place. Mm -hmm. So I remember very well all of that and have about Everybody thought Dewey had won, and the next morning Truman had won. But that's probably my first recollection of the political arena, which of course was a long time ago. My parents were strong Republicans. I'm a Republican. As it turns out, my brother was a strong Democrat. And um, so at some place along the line, my mother asked that we not discuss religion or politics. because, And we said, well, we're not fighting, we're just discussing. But she thought it was sounded more like arguing, so she asked that we not do that. <laughs> right. Well, you just mentioned the various schools that you went to, but how did you decide to go into nursing? Well, my mother was a registered nurse, but it was kind of, a, I thought, a call. I was a senior in high school. I sung in the church choir, and that was Christmas Eve service. As the choir stood to sing, I felt this call to be a nurse, so that's kind of how that happened. Uh -huh. And then you said you went to Methodist Hospital School, School of Nursing? School of Nursing, yes, which is the old three-year diploma program, which is no longer. Mm -hmm. A lot of things I did are no longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then did you also go to IU later as yes, well? Yes, I did. Okay. Mm -hmm. and was that for a master's? or? Ba it was a bachelor's and bachelor's science. Okay. And so they, I got credit for my School of Nursing, so I spent three years getting a bachelor's degree. As you, you know, matured from high school and into college and e even in your early career, in what ways did your awareness of politics evolve? Well, I think I've always been aware of politics. Um, 
and I can remember early wondering how did people get involved in, how did you get to work election day at the polls? Mm -hmm. So my first election was with um, Nixon and Kennedy. My husband and I hadn't been married long, and we lived in an apartment, but when we moved, when we built a home and moved, um, a, a Republican called and asked if I would volunteer to go door to door in my neighborhood just for the Republican Party, and I did. And then the next step was, well, would you be a precinct committeeman? And then I was a vice ward chairman, ward chairman, Warren Township chairman, and then ultimately a Marion County Republican vice chairman. When John Sweezy was out a while, I was the first, I guess, acting female county chairman, but it was only temporary until we could elect a new chairman. Mm -hmm. As you got married and, and then had kids, what were your career aspirations? Did you want to continue nursing or what did that look like for you? My last employment as a nurse was for a cardiologist mm -hmm. and my daughter was born in December and the, my last day at, on the, the job, if you will, was the day my daughter was born. I worked for a cardiologist and he kept saying, primips are never early, primips are never early, which means firstborn or never early, so work as long as you can. Well, she came early and so I was supposed to be at work, but instead I was at the hospital <laughs> having a baby. Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, then I was a stay-at-home mom, that was always my always my priority. I never worked while the children were growing up, uh, but I did do things like I was room mother, PTA president, went to the Warren Township School Board, spent eight years on the school board, was the first woman ever elected to the Warren Township School Board, first woman president of the Warren Township School Board, and uh, when my children graduated from school, I decided parents needed to be on the school board, so I didn't run, but I had friends who asked me to run for the House of Representatives, uh, which I did, and was elected to the House, and I was in the House nine months when Charlie Bosma died, and I was selected to replace Charlie. So was in the Senate a little over 33 years. Can you just briefly tell me how that process works, that they asked you then to run for his seat, or were you appointed? No. Or, or well, first of all, I had people who asked me to run for the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. But then when Charlie died, I guess I would say it was my choice to run for the Senate seat, and there were about 12, 15 of us one of whom was Charlie's widow, which made it hard. Mm -hmm. But I had worked so hard to become a member of the House that the committeeman who did the selecting knew me, and so I was selected to replace him. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they call those like a caucus election or something uh, like that. Okay. Well, I think we'll come back to that in just a second, but I want to get a few more details here. Yeah, so I guess turning towards your immediate family, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your family and when you got married? Okay. Well, as I said, my mother was a registered nurse. She was one of eight children, so she was, and she grew up on a farm. They worked really hard during the, the depression and everything. And then she met my dad, who was a patient, and uh, he had surgery on his nose. And so anyway, they fell in love and got married. My dad was from Ohio. Mother was from here, Westfield. Her family lived in Westfield. And in those days, you couldn't be a student nurse and be married. So they eloped and got married before she graduated from nursing. And then during the war, my dad worked at Allison's, but after the war ended, they opened their restaurant and spent years running a restaurant, which was a lot of hard work. They worked hard, my mother was the cook. My dad's family was, he had a brother and a sister who were living. He had a sister that died as an infant. My dad's parents were divorced 
My dad's mother lived with us until she died. She had pancreatic cancer and my mom, the nurse, took care of her in our home for as long as she was ill. So um, I don't know what all you want to know, but holidays we primarily spent with my mother's family, the, she and her seven siblings and our cousins. And so we had close relationships with our cousins in those days. Sure. And, and when did you get married exactly? 1960, 1960. long before you were born. <laughs> yes, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. <laughs> and what type of restaurant did your parents run? Uh, it was a small cafe. They were open from six in the morning till four in the afternoon. So wow. it was just breakfast and lunches for mm -hmm. all they served. Mm -hmm. so. And when were your children born? Uh, my daughter was born in 1961, December okay. of 61. My son was born in February of 63. And what were their names? Her name is Tamara. Mm -hmm. His name is Matthew. Okay. And your husband's Kenneth, is that right? Right. Mm -hmm. okay. And he's a dentist. Our son is a dentist and worked with my husband until my husband retired. Now our son has the dental practice. Wow. Our daughter's a dental hygienist. <laughs> and she works for her brother and they love working together. It's amazing. She lives in West Lafayette and, and drives down. Wow. She comes, she works Mondays and Tuesdays. Monday night she stays all night with us so she doesn't have to drive back yeah. and forth. Her husband's on the staff at Purdue. All, <laughs> all, well, the four of us, my husband, myself, well, my husband went to undergrad in Purdue. My son and daughter all graduated from IU and she married this person on the Purdue staff. So anyway. Um, <laughs> Is that difficult for your family? <laughs> well, no, no, not really. It's more of kind of the family. And the only time we ever have conflict is the IU-Purdue game. Mm -hmm. And my daughter's faithful to IU in those games, but otherwise she roots for Purdue. My daughter's oldest child is a boy. He just graduated from Purdue, mm -hmm. has a degree in accounting, and is going through the test to become a CPA. Mm -hmm. Her daughter is at Ball State. She's getting a degree in speech therapy. My son has two, two daughters. The oldest daughter is a ballet and Spanish major. She just spent time in Spain this past year as an exchange student. And their younger daughter is learning how to oh, do makeup and all this mm -hmm. cosmetic stuff and yeah. everything. So she's about to graduate from whatever that school is yeah. called, as, yeah. as math geek or something. But anyway, so that's my family. Uh -huh. We're very devoted to our family. It's top priority. Mm -hmm. We travel a lot, take our kids and grandkids with us, took them to Iceland and oh, Alaska. Wow. and you know, cruises, Great. and it's, uh -huh. it's a fun fun life, good life. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Did your family have any influence on your politics at all? or? Well, I, I suppose, since my parents uh, were strong Republicans. What about, like, your husband or children? Or? Oh, well, when my husband, when we got married, mm -hmm. well, I don't think he had much choice about what he was going <laughs> to be. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so, no, he was a Republican when we got married, and he mm -hmm. was also a Christian. I w wouldn't have married him otherwise, but, right. no, he was a Republican, and... So at any rate, I'm a strong Republican. My children, in-law children and grandchildren are all Republicans. Mm -hmm. At least that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> you know it is a confidential voting right. situation. Right, you can't go in there yeah. with them. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but they do know where grandma is, and uh, so anyway. Um, well, you mentioned a few minutes ago that some people came to you and asked you to run for mm -hmm. the House. So can you tell me how you became more seriously involved in politics or what led exactly to okay. you coming into the so House? Okay, so it was kind of a twofold situation. I became very involved in politics. I was a precinct committeeman, vice ward chairman, ward chairman, and that was sort of this going this way. Mm -hmm. And my, I was raising our children. I was room mother, PTA president and ran for the school board. So the school board is not a political office, but these sort of 
dovetailed. So when they sort of came together, my interest in the General Assembly was because of my activity on the school board. So I ran for the General Assembly because of education. But nine months later, when I got to the Senate and they found out I was a nurse, I got directed towards health. And so I did spend some time on the Education Committee and actually was on the House Education Committee with the Bob Orr prime time with the issue of the number of students in a classroom. But those two, they didn't exactly parallel, but they sort of piqued my interest in running for the General Assembly. At the same time, my kids were graduating, going on to college. And so other people that were involved in politics, uh, Warren Township politics primarily, Larry Buell, who had been county treasurer and was in the House, Dick Payne, Lee Richardson, a lot of the influential Warren Township people, Russ Brown from uh, Lawrence Township. But primarily, it was my interest to go to the House because I wanted to be involved in education decisions. But these folks were very instrumental in helping me make that decision. You know, you're, you're making a clear connection between nursing and education and how those came together. Were there particular experiences that shaped your political outlook or what made you feel like you had to get involved in that particular way? I think I grew into it. I'd never intend, I mean, it was never my goal to do this. That first woman who called and asked me to go door to door and then the next step and the next step, I just, like I said, I grew into it. It was never, you know, when I was 20, I didn't say, oh, one day I want to be a senator. Mm -hmm. When I was 20, I wanted to get married, have kids. And then it just developed. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know what all you've been involved in, but, you know, how did you get to where you are? You do one thing and then it grows and mm -hmm. becomes something else, mm -hmm. something else. So it was not, it was not something I had longed to do. I grew into it and became extremely committed to it. But like I said, I, it was all the other experiences that I built on. Sure. So I built on school board. I built on the, the political arena. Uh, getting to know a lot of people. I mean, Dick Luger, you know, I was there when Dick Luger was first did mayor. Lots of people that I knew in politics, which kind of, I guess, inspired me to want to do more. Mm -hmm. Because these were ex excellent people. These were people that were working hard. You know, Bill Hudnut was a good friend. All these people that were doing so much for our community. And I was think I was president of PTA maybe when I first met Bill Hudnut. I don't remember exactly, but I knew Dick Luger before that. And so getting to know those people in politics, politicians, sort of inspired me to do more too. But I had sort of a, a natural uh, inclination to want to do those things because I saw how I wanted to, quote, fix education or deal with health care or, mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But my primary goal in those years was raising our family, and I didn't want to do anything that would take me away from being with our children. Mm -hmm. Once they went off to college then, then I ran for the House and then the Senate. Okay. Do you remember at all, perhaps like the particular moment that you decide, okay, I, I definitely want to do this and get involved in politics? Was there like a, a specific thing that, that really made you want to start? Well, I guess motivation was people asking me to do things. Sure. The first person asked me and then the second person said, well, would you do this and right. do a little bit more and a little bit more? I think I came into it, as I said earlier, I just kind of grew into it. Right. I, it wasn't my childhood dream. Mm -hmm. It was something that I was exposed to and then all yeah. of a sudden, oh yeah, I'd like to do that. And then the next step came along and I, yes, I'd do that. Right, so, yeah, yeah, okay. And 
throughout the different elections that you took part in, what did your political campaigns emphasize most? My personal campaigns? Mm -hmm. Well, I think honesty and integrity, and then uh, always education, things that were important to the community. My campaigns always centered around what was important to the community. Right. And the fact that I was a Republican. A lot of the constituencies were strong Republicans. The Republican Party philosophy of limited government, local control, government closest to the people is the best. And right. those were things that I used in my campaign, which are the traditional Republican political things. Sure. But um, I talked a lot about ethics and honor and being available. You know, people want you to be available. So that was something I emphasized a lot. And then I was available. I was always available by phone calls, stopping me in the grocery. That was always part of my, my campaign. Mm -hmm. And what was it, what did it feel like the first day that you officially became part of the state legislature? That I really didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think you know what uh -huh. it's like, uh -huh. but to get there and find out. Sure. First of all, there was much more to it than I had imagined. Much more reading, much more learning, much more time. I mean, I used to tell people it's a 24-7 job because constituencies want you there all the time. Right. And phone calls could come anytime, literally. And, and one of the things, so for legislators who were from Gary or Fort Wayne, when they were in Indianapolis, they were in Indianapolis. But for those of us who represented Indianapolis, we were still here. So we not only had all the work to do at the state house, our constituents still wanted us there. So Franklin Township Republican Club, Warren Township Republican Club, Perry Township Republican Club, every Monday morning in Perry Township at a leadership meeting. Right. So when I was at the General Assembly, I wasn't away where that was all. I was still living yeah. here and still had to be a part of my community. So in many ways, I think those of us in Indianapolis area and the surrounding areas, people expected a lot more from us because we were here. If you're from some other city farther away, they don't expect you to be around all the time. Right. But here they do. And I think they probably still do. So how did your feelings change after each re-election? I don't know that they changed. I would always say mm -hmm. I was grateful. Sure. I was grateful. The campaigns were always actually, I don't know if fun's the right word, but it was good to be with constituents. It was good to go door to door. It was good to yeah. talk to people and be out and around. And I was always able to have a number of volunteers who if I was going door to door, they would go door to door. If there was a day I couldn't go door to door, they would go door to door. And so all of that was really good. And I had people that helped me uh, put together my mailings that went out, not, not the mailing list, which I had, but just what would go on the postcard and, and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, for that very first election, when yep. you were, you know, you won and you're going into the state house, what did you find or what were you thinking as you literally walked in that first day? Well, I guess I would say it was a thrill. You know, uh -huh. it was a very exciting, anticipating a lot of what would be going on, mm -hmm. you know, to have a parking place at the yeah. state house. <laughs> I'd be able to walk right in the door. So that was really kind of exciting, uh, having a seat assigned, getting to know my colleagues in the house. I think there were about 21 freshmen in the house when I went in. Now that included some of the Democrats, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of us that were new. Mm -hmm. And so just building relationships. And, and I can remember some of the legislators in the house who helped me I get to, to know how to do things. For example, Ray Richardson from Greenfield area mm -hmm. told me to always sign all my letters in blue. 
I still sign everything in blue so people know I did it. I, I did. I use this felt tip pen, but um, telling me things like that, you know, when people are questioning you and you step back from the mic a little bit and think before you respond um, and things like that that were were very helpful. And I, you know, when freshmen came into the Senate, I told them all the things that I did that they needed to do. Like, I always sent uh, letters to people on the honor roll. The schools would give me the list. So I did a lot of constituent work. But that first day was just just being there. Being sworn in was a was really important. You know, it was a big deal. It yeah. was a big deal. And then because I was in this special selection or election to replace Charlie Bosma. Mm -hmm. When I was sworn in, I was the only one sworn in because it hadn't just been a, a general election. It was 1983. There was no election for the House of Representatives. And I remember my parents being there with me when I was sworn in. And that was, you know, my dad was always so proud of me. And they, they were both very proud of me. But for them to be there and was really an important thing and was very, very important to them. I mean, in many ways, they were probably more thrilled than I was. I mean, they were just so excited and so pleased to be able to be there. And we've always had a close-knit family, growing up with my parents and now with our children and grandchildren. Well, you just talked a little bit about, you know, Richardson and others mentoring right. you as you came in, but how did you learn the actual ins and outs of how the General Assembly worked and the processes that went th with it? Well, they did have kind of an orientation, but it was really just learn from experience. You just, mm -hmm. you know, you learn how to do things. You First of all, you just go to committee hearings and all of that, and then you get involved in conference committees, and you just learn by doing it. You know, mm -hmm. it's like roller skating or whatever. Somebody can tell you how to do it, but you, you really just got to get in there and you make a few mistakes. But nevertheless, I would tell people, you're just going to learn by doing it, mm -hmm. and learn the process, learn the detail. Mm -hmm. Bob Orr was governor, and he did a great job with freshman legislators. He generally had freshman legislators carry his legislation, which I was thrilled. The Bob Orr bill I carried was to put computers in all the schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was 19, I was elected November of 82, this was January, February, March, 83. And so this was a big deal. Computers hadn't been in schools. And so we worked hard through that legislation because one of the issues was, would this apply to private schools as well as public schools? And we sort of went back and forth on that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, and I remember speaking to Bob Daly, who was speaker, mm -hmm. about you know how we're going to do this and so on. But anyway, that was one of the early uh -huh. pieces of legislation I carried mm -hmm. that I remember well. Yeah, okay. Um, you mentioned, again, Richardson and some others, but were there any other political mentors or, or any female mentors that sort of helped you out in that first year? Off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of females, but John Sweezy was the Marion County Republican chairman, mm -hmm. and John was always very instrumental because he was sort of running the party. But one of the things that I remember John saying all through the years he was county chairman is, our job is to elect good people and then let them do their job. And... He didn't try, once we were elected, he didn't try to influence or tell us what to do. He just wanted us, when he would when he would get involved was if we weren't doing our job or if we were in conflict with other Republicans, he might try to pull us together. We did used to have luncheons with all the Marion County legislators to just talk about Marion County issues. Mm -hmm. We worked with Fort Wayne because mm -hmm. 
the county chairman and Fort Wayne was close. And so if there were mutually big city issues that applied to, say, Fort Wayne and Indianapolis, we would work together. Mm -hmm. um, you talked a lot about being very available for your constituents. Mm -hmm. uh, in what ways did they communicate with you, or how did you know what they, they needed? Phone calls, emails, text, letters, personal contact. Mm -hmm. People here, this was my church, mm -hmm. people at church Sunday morning telling me what they thought. What was kind of ironic is there were people who didn't understand the difference between the federal government and the Indiana government. Mm -hmm. They would say, oh, you're home from Washington. And I, well, I'm, yeah, I'm here. But, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to put them down, but right. often run into people at the grocery or wherever I'm uh -huh. shopping that recognize me uh -huh. and would stop and talk to me. But any way to communicate, that's how people communicated. Mm -hmm. And I used to tell them, I don't care how they communicate as long as they do. And a lot of legislators didn't pay any attention to those form postcards or whatever, form letters. Mm -hmm. I did. And I used to tell people, I would rather you do a personal letter or a personal card. But if if you have to do a form letter or you won't do anything, do the form letter. Sure. Because I wanted them to communicate. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know where they were. Mm -hmm. And particularly on some of the tough issues, and occasionally the tough issues weren't what I would consider to be tough issues. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Like we do budgets and things that were lots and lots of money. But one year, the key issue for constituents was whether you could hunt and kill morning doves. And so, well, I'm just telling you, things that grab constituents, yeah. particularly southern Indiana with hunters, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the legislation was to prevent it. And uh, people just came out from everywhere that they, so it didn't pass, you know. Yeah. And then there was local measured service. I don't, you're probably too young to remember that issue, but do you want to hear this? Or, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Local measured service, telephone companies wanted to go to where you paid for your local service just like you did long distance. So um, how long you spoke, et cetera, was all yeah. a part of your charge. Well, people hated that idea. Realtors, senior citizens, anybody that used their phone a lot didn't want it. Mm -hmm. So we had literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calls. Um, grocery stores, drug stores put up signs in their facility, if you don't want local measured service, call your legislator. Mm -hmm. And the phones would ring just like that, literally. And so we passed laws. We didn't pass it. You could use it. We passed law to f prohibit local measured service, and that came up a few times, but it was always defeated because the public didn't want local measured service. And so, as a legislator, I felt that I needed to support my constituents, mm -hmm. and so other legislators felt the same way. Mm -hmm. Now, I can give you another one. Yeah. Mitch Daniels, when he became president, wanted to change how we do time. He wanted us to move our clocks from daylight savings time, you know what, where we are now. Indiana and Arizona were the only two states that stayed the same year-round. Mm -hmm. And I did a survey in my, my district, and people here didn't want it. They did not want to change time. So I can tell you all the governor's people came to talk to me, you know, to do this. That. I voted no. I voted no because the people in Senate District 32 said, mm -hmm. we don't want this. And somebody who wanted it called me and said, why did you vote no? And I said, because my constituents don't want it. And she said, oh, okay, that's good enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> but those are the kinds of things where you yeah. listen to the people who send you. Mm -hmm. And often the issues aren't controversial at all. Mm -hmm. Mostly the ones that are controversial 
are ones that are very personal to people. Mm -hmm. I rarely had people call me about the budget. Now, occasionally school teachers would say we want more money or something sure. like that. But the, the budget wasn't the big issue. And other issues that were big issues weren't, it was what impacted people personally mm -hmm. is when they got involved and when they really wanted you to listen mm -hmm. and when they wanted you to vote the way they wanted you to vote. And so mm -hmm. I tried to always do that. The other thing I would tell constituents is often, uh, I would always tell them, if you don't share your position with me, somebody else will. And so often it is the minority that communicates with you, and there's this huge silent majority out there that's not telling you anything. And I said, you've got it. if you want me to know where you are, you've got to tell me because you can't assume somebody else is speaking on your behalf. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things as legislators you have to kind of weed through and look at and see not only who you're hearing from, but who you're not hearing from. Mm -hmm. Was it ever, you know, if people are coming up to you at church and in the grocery store and you're getting letters and phone calls, did that ever feel overwhelming to you or that you couldn't get away from it? No. And if you ever feel that way, you better get out of it. Mm -hmm. That's what I've, you, you, you either have to love it and want to do it and want to be available and want to talk to people or you need to do something else. You mm -hmm. cannot be an effective legislator or maybe any public office holder if you're not willing to meet and talk with people. And I still get people stopping me in the grocery store or wherever I am and they'll say, aren't you Pat Miller? Yes. And then they'll say, oh, are you still in the General Assembly? I mean, some of them don't know I didn't run again. Yeah. And some of them will stop and tell me what they want on a position. Or And I'm, my philosophy was always to help them. So if someone would call about a chuck hole or some city problem, I never said, well, call the mayor's office. I always said, okay, we'll take care of it. And then I would have my secretary or somebody get in touch with the mayor's office mm -hmm. because it's very difficult for constituents to work through the process. And it was often difficult for me to work through the process to get whatever it was they wanted. And so I always felt whatever they asked me to do, I should do, even if it wasn't relative to state issues. Mm -hmm. And so if it was a federal issue, I often called mostly Luger's office because he was living in an incumbent. If we had a problem, somebody with their Medicare or something, I would always communicate with Luger's office to try to go through those hoops for constituents because it's a very difficult situation. They don't know who to call. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to get through it. So I always felt, I always felt that's what I wanted to do. And I always signed my own letters. Even my husband, we were driving. I had this board thing I put on my lap, and I'd be writing as we go along. And he'd say, why don't you use a stamp? I didn't want to use a stamp. Mm -hmm. My signature is probably worth about $1.98 because I've done all my, for 34 years I signed every letter myself. Wow. But I thought that was important. The other thing it did, it let me see names of people I'm signing letters for. Mm -hmm. So if it was honor rolls, if I, then I saw a grandparent or something, I said, oh, I just signed a letter for your grandson or whatever. Yeah. Gave me the ability to not only firsthand communicate with them, but then be able to be aware when I was talking to their family about whatever it was I had just done. And I used to have people say, my granddaughter got your letter and we read it at Thanksgiving family gathering or something. I mean, wow. well, this stuff, this is what's important to people. Uh -huh. Those letters were more important to those people than how I voted on the budget. Right. And I don't know if you've gotten this feel from other legislators, but I can tell you, your constituent work means a world to the people you represent. They want to know you care about them. And even if you can't fix their problem, if you listen to it, mm -hmm. if you listen to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. wow. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about the regular interaction amongst assembly members, whether that's formal or informal, what mm -hmm. that looked like? Well, first of all, it's very professional. When we're on the floor of the Senate, which I'm not anymore, but when you're on the floor of the Senate, it's always very respectful. It's always call each other's senator. We don't call anybody by first name on the floor of the Senate. It's very, very respectful. When we weren't on the floor, we had amazing friendships. And I say amazing because it's kind of like you're all in it together. You're all in the same boat together, Republicans and Democrats. And many of my good friends were Democrats, worked well with a number of, of Democrats. I had a lot of close friends in the Republican caucus, some of whom were very liberal. I've always been very conservative, who were very liberal. Larry Borst was one. He and I were very good friends. Uh, he was very liberal, but there were times he would tell me how to get something passed, and then he'd vote no. <laughs> well, because, you know, he sort of took pride in, in being the, the person to help you along. And uh, so I, I appreciated that sort of thing. He's also the one who would yell at me if I did something wow. wrong. <laughs> no, one time he did. I voted for a budget he didn't like, and he, he couldn't believe it. He turned around and scolded me. But anyway, that was okay. We had, I don't know how to describe the relationship except that, that you have so much common responsibilities. All the legislation was common. We all had to consider it. We all had to vote on it. Uh, so you build camaraderie. And I used to tell people, and still do, you know, you don't ever ruin friendships because your biggest enemy on this bill may be your best friend on the next one. So you're always working together. And so we always had that respect for each other and always maintain friendships beyond issues. We tried not to make issues personal, but to keep the, the momentum or the issue the issue. And so I think that was really an important thing. Some, some of the legislators would go out a lot at night and have dinner. I generally would just go on home, so I didn't have some of those kinds of relationships, but I did build uh, strong relationships with a number of people, for example, Senator Beverly Gard from Greenfield, she and I got to be really good friends. In fact, we're still good friends. We still have lunch together. Uh, Connie Lawson, who was, was there. So it's Connie Lawson, Teresa Lubbers, Becky Skillman, Bev and myself were good friends, and we still get together periodically for lunch or something. Mm -hmm. So there are those kinds of close relationships, but all of our relationships, I thought, at least from my point of view, were good, healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you were only in the House a year, but looking back from your time in the Senate and then when you were in the House, were there any differences between how each oh my chamber gosh. operated? Yes. In fact, I used to say when I was first in the Senate, I was house trained. It took me three years to get over that. But I don't know if you've been around there, but the Senate, the Senate is very formal. Uh, the House is very casual. The kinds of things that go on in the House... Now I just go, how could they do that? But some of the cheering and, but it was that. just a completely different atmosphere, totally and completely. So when I left the house and went to the Senate, I had to adjust to this very formal situation. However, I became a real believer that that was the better. Can you walk me through the process of generating a bill? What did that look like from beginning to end? Sometimes there were issues you worked long and hard with over the summer mm -hmm. and in the fall. Others were not so difficult. So one of the bills that I worked on early on that was extremely difficult was when HIV AIDS first became an issue. 
was probably 1984. It was a brand new disease. Nobody knew anything about it. We needed to do legislation. I spent a whole summer working on that. And we had about a dozen different issues in there. Criminal offenses, if someone um, deliberately spread the disease, how you deal with um, contamination. I remember one of the issues with the dentist was I wanted to use the word moist, dealing with sponges, and they wanted to use the word wet. They finally convinced me that moist wasn't the best term. Mm -hmm. But we, we dealt with everything dealing with that, and it was a difficult issue. Worked a lot with the gay community because they were very much opposed to mandatory testing. So all these things got answered in the interim, and then working that bill through uh, the Senate first, Senate Bill 9, I remember that number, uh, and then to the House was very difficult because there was so much, first of all, misunderstanding about the disease. I worked a long time with a physician who was with communicable diseases at um, Indiana University. Uh, Deutsch was her last name. I still remember all of this. But anyway, those were tougher issues because the issue itself was difficult and dealing with it was difficult. But we got a good bill passed, and I know it was good because it's rarely been amended mm -hmm. ever since. Mm -hmm. So some of those take an awful lot of time, a lot of effort. Learning, there was a great deal of learning about the disease and how it was communicated, uh, how it was transferred from individual to individual. And others are very, very simple. Somebody calls you and wants you to do something. One that I introduced, uh, you may not remember, but Jeff George was a football player with Warren Central High School quarterback, played pro ball. His dad, David George, called me one day and said he'd been working out at, a, at an athletic facility and somebody there died because they didn't have a defibrillator. He suggested we mandate defibrillators at all these facilities. So at his request, I introduced the bill, and that was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, there are some things that don't take a lot of preparation and don't take a lot of selling somebody on the issue because it's pretty well understood. People understand the need for it. Mm -hmm. So when you say putting a bill together, it just depends. Some of it is you go to call somebody at LSA, would you draft a bill that does this? And that's just the way it is. And others, you have to pick it apart, pick it apart, pick it apart, juggle words, change words. And those, actually, I thrived on those more than the easy ones. I used to say, anybody can pass easy. It's passing things that are hard, that are kind of, for me, sort of built the adrenaline and sort of that I enjoyed a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, how did you garner support for the difficult bills? How did you, you know, rally people to the cause, if you will? Word of mouth, meeting, sometimes meeting with a legislator one-on-one. -on -one. First of all, you'd find out who was kind of with you, mm -hmm. and then you'd find out who was uh, not sure, and then those who were very much opposed. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to spend a lot of time individually with those people mm -hmm. and explain to them and answer their questions. It was always important. I've had many little meetings where I bring three or four people together to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was bringing lobbyists together to talk to lobbyists about it. And I did that a lot. Mm -hmm. I used to say, I'm going to lock you in a room and don't come out until you get agreement. <laughs> but if lobbyists were with you like that, mm -hmm. I would always force, try to force them to come to an agreement. And usually they did. And in fact, after I had not run again, or after I was no longer in the Senate, I got a call from somebody and said, we need you down here. We're trying to work out a compromise language on telehealth and we need you here. Well, they, what they knew was I just said, okay, here's how it is. <laughs> but anyway, so uh -huh. it just depends. Okay. And frankly, it depends on 
the legislators. Different legislators have different modus operandi. Mm -hmm. okay. What does the public not know about how the General Assembly operates? What I think they're not aware of is how difficult it is, how many hours, how much studying, how much learning. You know, they've got this perception, well, you go down, the lobbyists buy you lunch, you spend a couple hours, and it's not that way. I often would go in the state house seven or eight in the morning and still be there at nine or 10 at night working, reading bills, marking up bills. Um, and often there were just two or three of us around working that late. But for me, I had to do it that way. I had to, I had, I, when I would mark up a bill, I'd circle words, I'd circle code sites and mark what they were. I did great detail. Some didn't. So it, once again, it's back to uh, who you are. But for me, I think constituents were not aware of how much time and how much learning and how intense some of that work is and that it isn't a nine to five with three hours off for lunch. It's a seven to nine working hard. And often I didn't have lunch. Most of the time I'd be at my desk for lunch. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. What would you say was the most controversial legislative issue that you had to deal with during your time in this? Oh summer? gosh. <laughs> well, it, you know what, part of it depends on how far bar back you want right. to go. But if you want to go back to just my last year or two mm -hmm. in the General Assembly, I carried the mass transit bill, mm -hmm. and that was extremely controversial. <clears throat> the mayors in the general area, central Indiana, really wanted mass transit, but they also wanted light rail. And the Chamber of Commerce wanted it, constituents didn't want it, and particularly my constituents, because I have like Franklin Township, which is not one of the more populated mm -hmm. townships. So that was hard to work through because a lot of legislators were opposed to it. Mm -hmm. And in, in the final analysis, I had to drop light rail because it was never going to pass with light rail. Mm -hmm. But we did get it passed and worked with Jerry Torr, was the sponsor in the House. I was the one in the Senate. But that one was, in my most recent years, that was probably the most controversial mm -hmm. that I can think of right now. Sure. May not be the most controversial, but it was definitely controversial. Mm -hmm. Do you have one from in the earlier years? In well, that HIV-AIDS bill was controversial. Mm -hmm. I carried a couple of ethics bills, which were ethics bills which were pretty stringent, and some of the legislators really didn't like that. So, one of the things in the bill I put through was that you, you couldn't be a lobbyist for a year after you left the General Assembly. There were a lot of those things that were in that mm -hmm. bill, and there was just legislators who just didn't think it was necessary. But for the public perception of General Assembly, I thought we had to pass an ethics bill. Mm -hmm. So I did that. It wasn't that it was so controversial. What we did was really needed to be done. But some of the attitudes about the bill were not what they might have been. Sure. And how would you describe committee work? I was a committee chair for I don't know how many years. Okay, for maybe th as many as 30 years. But the last 25 were health. So. First of all, the committees for me was a lot of work early on. So I had to read all the bills that were assigned to my committee. There were always a lot of bills in health. And then I had to, if I was interested in the issue, then I had to take minute look at what it did. And generally, I'd always want to amend it. I would sit and go over with LSA and mark up the bill, do this and this, do this and that, and then get amendments prepared for committees. And the Committee on Health generally was a long hearing, lots of testimony. So for me, and then I was also on the Finance Committee, Budget Committee, 
those took a lot of effort to just look at it, hear testimony, but particularly in health, there was always a lot of testimony. And so it just, I'm trying to think if I ever had a committee hearing that was kind of easy. Most of my committees required a lot of work and a lot of thought. What would you say was your proudest moment as a legislator? <laughs> <laughs> Having my grandchildren come down and introduce them yeah. to the Senate. Oh, I, I don't know, those are family things. Sure. But I never thought much about where pride was. Mm -hmm. I used to say and still say, you can get a lot more done if you don't care who gets credit for it because a lot of people have some ego involved. And if you don't get your ego involved in the legislation, you, you can be much more effective. Let somebody else take credit. You just get the work done. And I was always interested in getting the work done. When I, uh, when I announced I wasn't going to run again, people said, well, what do you think you'll miss most? The people, and I said, actually, the influence. Because what I loved most was having influence on legislation, actually setting direction for the future of the state. To me, that was the most important part. And those people are still my friends but it is the actual doing the work, coming with right language of how to deal with things was what was really important to me. Sure. Uh, what about some of the challenges you faced? What was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome? I've got to think about that because I don't sure. think of anything I did as hurdles. Some of them may have been kind mm -hmm. of hard, but I'd never, I don't know that I ever thought about hurdles. Okay. I'm not thinking no, of a hurdle. that's okay, yeah. that's okay. Um, there are probably lots of them. I'm just not thinking. <laughs> sure, <of> yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ask the people who worked with me. Yeah. <laughs> they'll Fair say I, they'll say I was a hurdle. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Let's see. So, sounds like working with the Democrats was a was a common thing. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have trouble working with with the other side at all, or no more than with some of my own colleagues? But oh, okay. but but there were legislators, Democrats particularly, that were harder to get along with than others. Vice Simpson and I worked very well together. Um, Kathy Smith and I worked well together. And the ones who are there now, we worked well together. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to talk to Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. Charlie Brown and I started out like this. We both elected to the House in 1982. I went to the Senate in September of 83, so I was in the House nine months. But he was chairman of the House Health, and I was chairman of the Senate Health. and. It took a little while, but Charlie and I developed great friendships. We're still great friends. And I would tell people that Charlie was so far left and I was so far right, we would meet. But we worked very well together on a lot of bills. And the Healthy Indiana Plan was one. And if you want to talk about where there's some real pride in what we did, the Healthy Indiana Plan that Charlie and I worked together on really was a, a great thing. Mitch Daniels was very supportive of it. But, you know, so I guess I'd use Charlie as an sure. example of who I worked well with in the Democrat caucus, yeah. Tell, tell us a little yeah. bit more about the Healthy Indiana Plan while we're Well, there. I actually put in a bill that it goes way back. When Evan Bayh was governor and Chris Bailey was the head of the Department of Health, I wanted to just do something to provide health insurance for those who couldn't afford it. And Chris Bailey, head of Department of Health, said, 
why don't we study it and see what we need to do? And so we did a three-year study on how you address the issue with people. And, and we never did get that resolved. But when Mitch Daniels became governor, I put language in a bill that said I wanted the, I wanted the administration to come with legislation for the General Assembly of how to address health care for the working poor, because the very poor have Medicaid. Mm -hmm. The people who have money have health insurance. So at any rate, Mitch Robe really hurtled and did a lot of that work with the governor in the interim. And so we had a rough draft of a bill. And I worked really, really hard on it with the administration in the Senate. And then it went to the House. And of course, Charlie worked hard, and he and I worked hard together. But the significant part of it is how were we going to pay for the Healthy Indiana Plan? And the issue was cigarette tax. And Charlie always supported I mean, Charlie would have put a $5 cigarette tax on because he has no use for smoking and tobacco. But at any rate, we got all of that worked out. In the final analysis, to put the tax in a bill, taxes can only pass in the House, a House bill. So we had to move all that work out of a Senate bill into a House bill because we had to put the money in with the bill. So, but it went well. The tax was an issue. The magic number was it couldn't go. The total tax on cigarettes couldn't go over a dollar. So I think we ended up with a 98 and a half cents total tax on cigarettes. But we got it done. And in the final analysis, Mitch Daniels was very pleased with the bill. Charlie and I, of course, were really pleased. We did this little press conference with Governor Charlie and myself to sort of unveil the Healthy Indiana plant. And then Mike Pence built on that. And so Mike Pence and I worked together some. Um, Seema Verna, who is now at the feds with the, you know who Seema is. She's the head of CMS who was here, worked with Mike Pence. But anyway, Mike Pence built on the, the, the first part of the Healthy Indiana plan. And we, at one point we might have called it Healthy Indiana Plan 2 or something, but we, that never stuck. It was always just a Healthy Indiana Plan, but we enlarged the Healthy Indiana Plan, which is a great thing for the state of Indiana and which I think would be good for the country, but that's yeah. what it is. And for the Healthy Indiana Plan and, and I guess other legislation you worked on, how crucial was it to work with the other side? Crucial, yeah. because most of my career in the Senate the Senate was controlled by Republicans yeah. and the House was controlled by Democrats. So to have sure. not had a good relationship across the aisles, not only across the aisle, but across the hall, yeah. would have essentially been a bad thing for the state of Indiana. We had to learn right. to get along. So the finance people in the House, Ways and Means and Senate Finance, those people had to work together. You know, it didn't matter what we were crafting, it had to be mm -hmm. across the aisles. And so in my final days, we had. The House and the Senate both had the supermajority, and so, and I have often told people, sometime, when I look back, the easiest time was when we had 26 Republicans in the Senate, because there could be nobody flaking off. We all had to sort of march to the same drum, because it took 26 votes to do, to pass anything. Uh, when you get up to 34, or whatever the magic number is, then people want to start going a little here and a little there. That was actually a good time. It was yeah. a good time. So, I guess, in your opinion, what would you say is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? To take care of Hoosiers and give the Hoosiers as much freedom on their own as they can. So, do for people what they can't do for themselves. Right. Streets and roads and, oh my goodness, the things that, you know, 
that, that you can't do for yourself and then leave you alone with everything else. That's, that's how I think we need to govern. And unfortunately, we start meddling some, but that's, that's what I think. And so for me, that was probably one of the most important, sure. important things to do. So I guess now sort of diving into more specific legislative issues throughout your career, uh, you already talked about the Healthy Indiana Plan. Uh, we noticed through research you really were involved a lot with health care, right. co-authored a bill, expanded Medicaid coverage for pregnant women and children. Um, what were your overall goals for health care in the state of Indiana? To provide health care for those who couldn't help themselves, but not to go beyond that. Right. And frankly, I think there has been abuse of Medicaid by, by consumers and healthcare providers. You know, I think there are people who are getting Medicaid that have resources that they have in some way or another placed them so that, that I, I used to occasionally have somebody call and say, my sister-in-law is getting Medicaid and I can tell you she's got a car and she's got money, she shouldn't be on it. But, so I know there were people out there that shouldn't have been on it. Sure. But but that's, that kind of fraud is what bothered me most, but making sure that the people who needed it got it. And so for me, that was a key. Yeah, okay. Uh, so yeah, another topic, it, it seemed like uh, throughout your career, and I guess really just sort of the modern era in general, there were lots of debates going on with subjects like abortion and the LGBTQ community. Could you describe the varying thoughts in the General Assembly about those topics? Um, it's, well, I'm very pro-life. Mm -hmm there are a lot of people down there who are very pro-choice and those are issues you can't compromise on you know you can compromise a budget at a certain dollar amount those issues can't be compromised and right. so I would tell my constituents that that I'm pro-life your lobbying me cannot get me to change my position because that's a moral issue for me but you can vote me out of office but I'm gonna vote pro-life and I did and usually people would accept that. Once in a while I'd get some pushback and, mm -hmm. well, how can you say that? But that's the way I honestly felt, so that's how I honestly uh, shared it with them. And then a few years back we had a bill, I can't remember what it was called, oh, it was so controversial, dealing with LBGTQ. Mm -hmm. Oh, the RIFRA? RIFRA, yes, yeah. So I thought that was a thing that we needed to do. I supported it. There was so much pushback from that that they ended up amending it, which I thought we should have stayed with it the way we passed it. But, but that's one. Sure. That's one. Okay. Let's see. Uh, I also saw that there was a lot of debate regarding sort of the regulation of lobbying in state government. Yeah. Could you describe what was going on and, and your role in that? Well, I told you earlier I was very involved with the ethics bill. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think we need lobbyists because they are the experts. Sure. But I did get very concerned on the number of lobbyists in the whole gambling area. It seemed like there were so many people paid to lobby on behalf of gambling. That was a concern for me. But generally, all the lobbyists are experts, whether doctors would come down and testify on health care issues, attorneys would talk about some of the things, prosecutors would come and talk about the laws and what we needed to do in the whole area of prosecution of criminals. So generally, those people were the experts and they were they were helpful, but what bothered me was if I saw some people that I thought were walking the line. Mm -hmm. And to me, walking the line was, they weren't doing anything illegal, but they were getting real close to where that line was. Right. That was bothersome. Okay, did it change a lot from when you first started uh, versus near the end of your career? 
a lot of things changed a lot. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And so I think probably it did one, it seemed like there were a lot more lobbyists around now right. than there were when I started. Oh, okay. And the media is different than when I started. One person I remember, the name was Moose Roberts, they called him, but he was with the print media and he knew the General Assembly so well. He knew issues not an inch deep, but a mile deep. And so his coverage was excellent. And so I'm not faulting the press now. I'm just saying there are things that were so different then. Right. Sure. Let's see. Another bill that looked interesting was uh, there was one regarding the ability to seize weapons from a dangerous individual, I believe it was in 2005. Um, could you explain more about that topic and what the debate was? Is this was? a bill I was on? Or yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you were involved with it, it appears. Okay, um, maybe, I'm not sure, the yeah. Jake Laird bill. Okay. Jake Laird was a law enforcement officer in Beach Grove. I represented all of Beach Grove, and he was killed by an individually mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And so we passed legislation to say someone who is mentally ill cannot have a weapon, essentially forbidding them to get a weapon. Mm -hmm. So that could be right. something you're talking about, yeah, which I wholeheartedly right. supported. It needs to happen. I don't carry. I have a permit to carry. I don't carry. Right. But I'm very strong on Second Amendment rights. But there are folks who shouldn't have guns. They're dangerous to themselves and they're dangerous to other people. And so sure. I think that's how you have to make your decision. But I'm not at all for restricting arms for law-abiding citizens. Right. I, I guess one of the things that was really interesting to read about your background was how much you were invested in sort of trying to protect children of the state. Uh, for example, anti-bullying legislation, or perhaps uh, there was a bill that you introduced to help build a, a big children's home. Mm -hmm. um, why was this work so important to you? Because children can't speak for themselves and children of everyone in the, the world, I guess in the community, they should be protected and cared for and loved, especially cared for and loved. Some are in horrible situations that you wouldn't wish on anyone. Sure. And I think we needed to do as much as we possibly could for children. There were other issues you didn't mention that yeah. I was involved in with for children. And I just can't think of any group of people who needs more help. Right. Foster kids, you know, I was, the only time I ever remember the health committee sort of crying was we had a group of foster kids come and testify about how when they turned 18, they lost everything, no health care and all of this stuff. And uh, we were, they really had us in tears and so we wanted to do something for them. Definitely. And uh, I remember, you know how the Senate is and the up above people. Mm -hmm. Somebody, I don't remember who it was, was walking around. He said, when I saw what was going on in that committee, I knew we were going to be, <laughs> be given this legislation. But those kids need help. I mean, they need help. And one of the things I hate is when there's a situation of child abuse with a parent, they yank the child out of the home. They ought to be yanking that abusive parent out of the home because now you've got a child who's been horribly treated and you're yanking them out and putting them in another environment. I think that's a terrible thing to do. It ought to be that guilty party that's yanked out of there. But sure. we've never gotten to that. Was there a, a specific bill that you worked hardest on in regard to that topic? All of them. I don't. Oh, I, yeah. I'm sure all of them. Yeah. 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 I don't. I don't remember right now. Sure. Uh, but that's more. Of the, I just don't remember. It doesn't mean right. they're not out there. Definitely. But 
okay. My, my next question is about uh, when uh, Obama was elected in, in 2008 as president. Uh, I saw that you co-authored a committee report congratulating him. Uh, as a Republican, is that something that's commonly done? It is. Okay. It's it's pretty routine to sure. do that. It's, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they did one for Trump. I have no idea. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I also noticed during your time there was some debate about uh, displaying the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. uh, what was sort of the role of religion in the General Assembly? What, how did that play out? Well, not well, but I thought mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments were extremely important. But the issue was the Ten Commandments were posted outside the State House and the yard. And when they did some grand landscaping, they, they moved them oh, okay. and they never brought them back. Mm -hmm. And nobody seemed to know where they were, but I had a number of constituents who were very interested in the fact that those Ten Commandments should have been brought back to where they were. And so I got really heavily involved with that. Sure. And Ten Commandments, I don't know, they seem almost to, to prevail even above religious because they're so basic to what people believe and how they perform. And frankly, if you go through those Ten Commandments, Many of them are legislation. You can't kill, you know, you can't steal. All of those things are, right. are, if people did what they're supposed to do, we wouldn't have to pass so many bills. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, things like adultery, we, we, no way we could get into some of those, but a lot of the Ten Commandments are just basic. How are you going to treat people? Right. So what was the pushback then against that? Well... <laughs> There are a lot of people who just don't think any sort of, quote, religion mm -hmm. should be in government. Sure. But having said that, this, the House was sued for having prayer in the House. The Senate was never sued. But I absolutely adamantly believe we should start every session of the General Assembly with prayer. We've had all kinds of people pray. A lot of different religions we had come in and pray in the Senate. But Judeo-Christian is really is what we are as a country. And I think to start the day with prayer, they do that in Washington, D.C. all the time. They have a, they have a chaplain. You know, M Marshall was the chaplain for years and years. They even did a movie of his life. But to me, that's just, it's not a controversial thing. It's just the way we should do things. Mm -hmm. So I was very supportive of doing that. And uh, the House won their their lawsuit, by the way, so they hmm. do great. They did go back to doing prayer. What impact did uh, your religious beliefs have on your legislative career? I was a basis, pretty much, for for what I believe and what I did, and sure. and it was a basis for, I hope, how I treated other people. Right. Although I was very stern, but I I hope it was that. But it was a key foundation for what I believe, so that had impact on on how I performed. It had impact on what I wanted for health care, about taking care of people. It had impact on how I felt about crime or environment. I mean, basically, it's the underwriting support of my life. How common would you say religion was really important to the legislative body? I think with a lot of legislators, it was very important. 
a number of them were not so outspoken, but in their personal right. lives, and I'm talking Republicans and Democrats, it was very important to their lives about what they did. Uh, you know, we have the governor's prayer breakfast. There's the mayor's prayer breakfast. There are a lot of things where we come together with great speakers and get together for prayer and worship. We have a, to begin with, I think Indiana may have been the first, I'm not 100% sure, capital building with a chapel. We have a chapel, it's non-denominational, you can't walk in there and say, oh, there's a cross or there's a whatever. Interesting. It, it's a, yeah. But we do have, and every, maybe Thursday, it might have been Thursday, every Thursday noontime is some kind of a little worship service in there. You can hear them playing the piano and singing. And I know because the Senate Finance Committee met right next door, and if we were still meeting at noon, you could hear them start start that. But that was something that we thought was was a good thing to do and very important. And we do have someone who's a chaplain around the state house, Matt. Anyway. Um, sure, okay. Did you have any regrets as a legislator? Well, that we didn't do more for children. You know, every once in a while something will come up and I say, oh, I wish I'd have filed a bill to do that. Mm -hmm. But you can't, you can't do it all. I used to right. file about 30 bills. I may have been one of the ones that filed the most legislation. Wow. Couldn't get it all passed, couldn't even work at all, but yeah. filed, tried to get, get toe in the door to do some of those things but I guess I would say I'm grateful for the privilege that I had yeah and you know not many people have that privilege and so I take the responsibility very important it wasn't something to be just enjoyed it's something to work something to do I spend a lot of time trying to do the very best and I think I did most of the time do my very best at what I was trying to do so I guess if I had a regrets I couldn't do better Right. I wasn't capable of doing better. Well, when did you leave the General Assembly? 2016. I didn't run in 2016, okay. so I was there until December of 2016. And, and did you just feel like it was time to retire, or what mm -hmm. had changed for you? I'd been there 34 years. Mm -hmm. My husband had been retired for a few years. My children, obviously, were getting older. My grandchildren were growing up. Mm -hmm. I was going to, I'd already missed a lot of time with my family. You know, there were times when I couldn't go on vacation. One year we went into special station, we're there till like the end of June, and my family was someplace in Kentucky on a lake with the river boat, or with not a river boat, but we had boats, houseboats. And so I just thought it was time. Mm -hmm. I thought 34 years is a long time. And if you can do math, you know I'm 83 years old. So I, so I worked till I was 80. I mean, I was in the Senate till I was 80. The saying is there, you can leave three ways from the, from the General Assembly, actually from anything. One, you can be carried out feet first because you die in office. You are carried out because the voters throw you out. Or you can walk out on your own. And I wanted to walk out on my own. But that's a long time. Yeah, that's definitely. a long time. How would you summarize your time overall in the General Assembly? First of all, it was a great experience and a great privilege. I think that when I was there, we did a lot of good things, many of which I was involved in, but even beyond the ones I was personally involved in, I thought we did a lot of good things. I had, I guess I would say pride isn't a good word, but I had pride in what the General Assembly was doing. I had pride in my colleagues because they took it serious. I had pride in the ethics of what my colleagues some of my colleagues were extremely ethical, very, I mean, you never had to question them. You never had to question their word. And I think for legislators, the only thing we had was our, our word. And if 
if we weren't good to what we said, then we essentially lost all ability to be effective in the General Assembly. So my word was good. People knew no was no. They, they knew yes was yes, but they knew, really knew no was no. I generally didn't wishy-washy. People generally didn't have to wonder what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I always tried to be honest with people. If I was going to be a no vote, I told them I was a no vote. Some people didn't like to do that, but I always did. I wanted to be straight with people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, mm-hmm. but it's an answer. <laughs> I mean, 34 years is a, it's a long time to cover, but do you have a favorite story or anecdote that oh, sticks gosh. out to you? <laughs> oh. Oh, geez. I have to, I need to think about that a little while. Okay. What lessons did you well, learn? I learned, I'll tell you, when I retired, they gave me a, this big reception over at the mm-hmm. Columbia Club, and I told you about Charlie Brown. Uh-huh. They put Charlie Brown up to bringing me a gift, but and it was a bikini bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty far yeah. out. as a beach hat, thongs, uh-huh. and I guess flip-flops you right. don't use. So flip-flops in this bikini bathing suit, but anyway, so, um, yeah, it was, but we had lots of, lots of anecdotal stories, Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of fun things, a lot of, you have to laugh in that situation. I had death threats, which were not pleasant, but anyway, but there was a lot of fun associated with it. Mm -hmm. Well, what lessons, if any, did you learn during your... Hard work, hard work, studying hard, reading, uh, getting to know what you're talking about, my goal was always to know more about a subject I was working on than anybody else. Mm-hmm. My goal was always to never have anybody ask me a question I couldn't answer. So when I was studying something, I would think of every question someone could ans- ask me, and then I'd come with the, figure out the answer. Mm-hmm. So I learned diligence. I already had it, but I learned more intensity in working and studying and knowing your subject, knowing how to work with people, knowing where to go to get answers. What advice would you give to future legislators or even current folks in office? Take your job very seriously, work hard, and represent your constituents. How would you say the state has changed over time? It has changed. It's just different. It's just different. I don't know that it's better or worse. Mm -hmm. It's just different. Right. What makes it different to you? Well, in many cases, it's the personalities. I mean, if I walked into the Senate Republican Caucus right now, I'd be out of place because there are so many new people that have come in. Then the attitude has changed. And it's not, a, it's not that it's a bad attitude. It's just a different attitude, different relationships, different getting along. New governor, you know, I've, it's just changed. Sure. Um, during your time as a legislator, do you think that Indiana citizens were engaged enough in the work of the General Assembly? I think generally constituents are not engaged enough in government at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're engaged enough with the General Assembly. Right. I don't think they speak often enough to the city. I don't think they, I think if constituents would really say something to Washington, D.C., some of this stuff would stop. Sure. Um, because I just think people aren't people aren't listening to what people want them to hear because people aren't saying it. Right. They're saying it to you and me, and they'll come up to me and tell me, but they're not going to call somebody um, that's, quote, in the position to do that. And I think think this country was built on 
um, essentially the backbone of the people who came here. I mean, we were a strong country. People who came here were courageous and strong, and they, they represented what they believed well. And that's how we ended up with what I think is a wonderful government and a wonderful system. People now are less involved. And I particularly see this with younger people. And it doesn't matter if it's government or my Rotary Club or PTA or any, they're just not as engaged. You know, it's much, much harder to get volunteers now, whether it's for the Republican Party or Kiwanis or Rotary or my church, getting people to, to do more. We don't have the volunteerism today that we had, and we don't have people engaged in things that we had. And I think, I think the country needs to, that pendulum needs to swing back, and we need to have more public influence in government and in all the other kinds of areas where normally we've counted on the volunteerism to play a key part in how we're, how we're functioning. What do you think has caused that shift? Boy, there's a lot of things. One is maybe the way we've raised our children. We wanted to give them the best, and so they haven't had to work as hard growing up. You know, I worked in the summers to, to make money. I worked as a waitress to make money to help pay for my going to school, to college, and nurses training. Some people are working hard now. They have to. But in many cases, families have enough resources mm -hmm. to help their children. That may be one thing. But one, I don't, I don't think we've had enough influence in educating them about how important volunteerism is, mm -hmm. how important it is to be involved at your school, uh, how important it is to go meet with the teacher if it's parent day at the school. Mm -hmm. We just need to help people understand how significant that role is and how significant all these volunteer organizations are, whether it's Red Cross or Kiwanis or Rotary or PTA, all those things, people just need to know this is an important thing and I need to get more involved. But for some reason, they don't feel it like we did. Mm -hmm. And when I say we did, you may not feel it like we did. I don't know. What if any enduring qualities uh, do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? I think they still love their country, and I think they hold it dear. I'm just not sure they're expressing it the way we did. But I think the American people and our, our, our wonderful people, I think there is an American spirit that maybe we don't appreciate enough. But if you think about 9-11 and the attitudes that this country had, you can think of other things. Disaster. You know, if there's disaster relief and there's a flood, I mean, people, the outpouring of help is enormous. And so on the one hand, I said volunteerism is, but when there is a need, the American people are very, very generous and they're very res resilient. Right. And so we don't have a high percentage of people who vote. And I think that may be because they're satisfied with what they have. But I will tell you, if there was ever an attempt to take the vote away, be a different story. Mm -hmm. So I think the American people have a character uh, that maybe it's hard for me to describe. It's a profound, positive kind of inner strength that we have. Mm -hmm. 
do you think there's a uniquely Hoosier aspect to that too? I do, yeah. I do. Well, we're Hoosiers and we have, there are things here that we do that are very important, including our little accent. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we do have a Hoosier accent mm -hmm. and uh, people that aren't from here will call me on it sometime, but <laughs> I think we do. I think we're proud of our state. I think we think we're doing it best and we are. Well, we asked a lot of questions yes. here today, but you know, with such a long and illustrious career, we can't get to anything. Is there anything that we haven't asked that you would like to go on record about or talk oh, through? Oh, geez. I didn't know what to expect. So I didn't, I hadn't given any thought to what I might want to say. Mm -hmm. I guess I just would like for people to appreciate what they have, mm -hmm. to appreciate this state and this country, to be grateful for what we have. I've been to Africa a few times, and I've said a few times, people here ought to go to Africa or some of these countries. Third world is like. We have so many things that we take for granted. Water, sewers, electricity, roads, and in spite of the chuck holes, when you're in a country that has no roads, no water, no sewers, no electricity, and no way to build infrastructure, and they can't build economy without infrastructure, and they can't do infrastructure without some kind of economy. It's, we just have it so good here. I wish people appreciated it more. And that's why I say people should go to Africa for a while or someplace else, because we have it so good, and we just need to love it more. Anything else you have, Ben? Or? No, no, no. No. Well, thank you so much for taking time. I know you're a very busy <laughs> woman. And I'm, I'm glad to do that.